If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is The Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneur. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com. And without further ado, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. My guest today is Matt Bertulli. Matt is the co-founder and CEO of Demac Media in Toronto. It's an award-winning commerce agency that serves mid-market and enterprise merchants with online and in-store technology products. They basically help their clients process more than over $500 million in online sales. Matt is also the author of Anything, Anywhere, The Future of Retail and How to Build a Digital First Roadmap to Growth. He's worked with a lot of technology companies, not only in Canada, but across the U.S. as well. And he also has some very great stories in terms of entrepreneurship coming from an entrepreneurial family in the retail space. So I'm pleased to have him on the show today to tell us a little bit about himself, his business, and his, and his background. So Matt, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, man. I, I always love it. You guys, every podcast host does a much better job of introducing myself than I ever could. Uh, <laughs> so it's just, it's so nice to hear. It's like, oh yeah, I did all that. That's I, great. Uh, that, that's me, right? <laughs> Cool. So, Matt, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. You know, how did you get on this journey? Yeah. Um, so I started I started DMAC in 2008. Uh, I left. So prior to that, I'm, I'm a I'm a, yeah, I guess, like self-taught software developer. I've been mm. coding since I was 11. Right. Yeah. Um, super lucky to have a father that brought home a computer at a very young age. And I never sort of gave it up. Uh, and that that just. Also lucky in that the whole internet thing became a thing. Yeah. And, you know, I was there early and learning early. So I have time on my side and I don't I don't take that for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 2008, I had I was at a company in 2006, 2007. I was at a company called NetSuite, which is a big ERP uh, software business owned by Oracle now. Um, and we had gone public in uh, and shortly after we had went public, I decided to leave and start DMAC. Um, not really knowing what it was going to be, what it was going to do. I just knew that I wanted to do something in and around e-commerce and retail because um, I figured that it was it was going to be even bigger than what it was, you know, uh, almost 10 years ago now. Yeah. So yeah. I, I've kind of – I always knew that I was going to start something just because I come from a – like my mother is an entrepreneur. My grandparents were entrepreneurs and um, it just sort of in the family and I've always wanted to do my own thing and – as soon as I saw a chance and or an opportunity, I sort of took it and I leapt and I did the thing. I know you said in some other interviews that you know you went to college, you were there for about two three months, and then you were like, "Yeah, oh, peace out. I'm not doing this," and you went yeah. back to work. And so, tell us a little bit about that. Why, why did you decide to say, "Hey, man, this probably isn't for me," and then you found yourself in NetSuite, correct? Yeah. So why didn't you start up right away? Why did you? Um, get a job because I, I don't know how it works in Canada. Would they just hire you just because you have no. the skills without the degree or what? Uh, so I guess I think I got a little lucky. Okay. Um, 
so I left when I, so I, I did, I lasted about three months in university. Um, mostly because I, I really disliked the, the lead professor of the computer science program of the school I was at. Mm. Uh, I thought the material was dated. Like it was, it was one of those situations where like I had been, I'd actually been working for an engineering firm called Hatch Associates, mm-hmm. um, uh, as a kid. So when I was in high school, I got a job part-time there, just hacking around on stuff and learning. And by the time I got into university, the material that was being taught was already years behind. Wow. And I kind of, I always, and I mean, I still think that that is the case in some schools and some schools are better than others, obviously. But for me, um, I wasn't enjoying it. I wasn't really learning a whole lot or I didn't feel I was. I think part of that is just like being young and stupid and yeah. thinking you know everything. Yeah. Um, and, and the other part of it was probably true, right? Which was, you know, I, I'd done a lot of this stuff. Why am I here? Um, and at the same time, I had received a job offer, um, you know, to go to go work for another company, right? And it was the it was still sort of dot-com boom days, so there was actually a lot of work yeah. uh, for people that could do what I do without needing, you know, the formal education and all that. Now we all know what happened, right? That that thing busted, and mm-hmm. I lost that job, and uh, as did a whole bunch of other people. <clears throat> so then I kind of just floundered around and did my own freelance thing and got another job. Like I just never stopped working as a professional software developer mm-hmm. once I left school and. You know, some of that was just like a series of fortunate events, and some of it was I just hustled my ass off to constantly get better, and, yeah. and it worked, right? Yeah. You did all that. You hustled. You got the job with Net, um, NetSuite, and then yep. NetSuite gets what? The IPO, correct? Yep. And then you leave with, um, obviously, you had some stock that you were able to sell. Yep. So yep. So once we IPO'd, I had, I had some stock that was vested. Um, I sort of made the mistake. I, I got married. We decided to get married, uh, buy a house and I quit NetSuite all inside of the same four months. Um, so I was like unemployed at my wedding or like just starting out my own business, which is sort of fun. A little, Uh, a little pressure, right? A little bit. And, uh, yeah, just a little bit. And I think, I think that, you know, I think the NetSuite experience. So the cool thing with NetSuite for me was, um, up until that point, I was working as a software developer and at NetSuite, I was a pre-sales engineer. Yeah. And that means like, so I knew I wanted to have my own business at some point, but I also knew that the only experience I had professionally was coding. And, you know, anybody who's ever built any kind of business is like, you know, sales, marketing, there's so many other functions of a business that I knew nothing about firsthand, particularly in technology. So NetSuite was just this really good opportunity to to learn about like what the quote unquote front end of, of business. Um, so like without that gig, I, I don't think the DMAC would have gone nearly as well because I got like really, really great sales training mm. at NetSuite. Like, I mean, world-class sales organization yeah. still is. Yeah. Um, bunch of friends that are still there, like they know how to sell. And, mm. you know, no NetSuite, I don't know that DMAC would be, you know, would have had the early wins that we got, right? Yeah. Um, I just, I, I don't see it. So what were some of those early wins? How did you acquire your initial customers in your startup phase? Yeah, so 
early on, um, once I left NetSuite, I, I just I started networking like an idiot, um, online, offline, like going to anything and everything in terms of events, meetups. Um, and that was just sort of like figuring out how that all worked. At the same time, what, what we started to do was we started to, to look at uh, technology vendors, so like software companies that were in the e-commerce space mm -hmm. to see if there were uh, companies that we could work with. So like rather than rebuild you know, technology for ourselves from the ground up, which was what a lot of companies were doing at the time. Mm -hmm. I wanted to find something maybe open source, maybe, you know, more enterprise, similar to the way that NetSuite had built up this big value added reseller network. Yeah. I wanted to find a company that, um, that we could do the same thing with, or that I could do the same thing with. So I, early on, I, we stumbled on, uh, a company called Magento, which was a e-commerce platform and it was really new and it was open source. This is, you know, eight, nine years ago and called them up, uh, spoke to the founder's wife, right? Cause she was in the business and they were just sort of starting to build out a formal partner program. Um, so I got in there really early. Like one of the, I was the first partner in Canada. Okay. Um, and one of the first in North America mm -hmm. and started to uh, actually get leads and prospects from them. As people called them, they're like, hey, do you know anybody in the Toronto area? And, you know, they would refer them over to me because I was the only one for a while. Yeah. So I think, you know, that worked really well in our favor. Um, you know, the other side to that is I also was pretty good at what we did, like quite good, yeah. um, you know, way ahead of our time. So that just sort of built referrals and um, the whole thing just started to stack up. Uh, and then on and on, we just kept adding on sales channels and all that good stuff. But early on, it was just, I mean, anybody who's ever started, I'll tell you like the, the first two years, three years is just such a shit show of a grind. Like it's, mm -hmm. you just have to work your ass off and that's, mm -hmm. that's all I did. Yeah. And it's, it's funny that you mentioned that you just have to work so hard because these days, if you look at the media, a lot of people will tell you, Oh, I just woke up and I made a million dollars. Um, in three yeah, days. That's, <laughs> <Starting> yes. <up. laughs> yeah. I think, you know, I, I think I'm in the e-commerce world, right? And, mm -hmm. and there's nothing there, you know, every time I turn, I open up Facebook, uh, it's somebody trying to sell me some kind of, you know, how to start an e-com store and sell half a million bucks in three months or like an Amazon store, private label this. And uh, it's, it's, it's sort of becoming laughable because mm -hmm. I think, you know, anecdotally, the majority of the people selling these these dreams and these courses are making more money selling the courses than they ever did building the actual business. Yeah. Um, and that when I when I've I've actually gone and peeled back a little bit a few of the layers around some of those like, yeah, you can just you know get up and by nine a.m. you've made fifty grand. I I actually go into those programs and whatever and I, I'm like how much substance is there really right like is mm -hmm. there something I can learn yeah. and often often most of that stuff winds up at least in the e-commerce world winds up being um, they're building short-term businesses based on arbitrage or exploitative uh, measures mm -hmm. instead mm -hmm. of building brands yeah. and what I would call like a real business Right, which takes time and patience and work. Mm -hmm. um, one will be around for a long time. One will maybe make you some money in the short term, depending on your goals. Mm. And that's how I look at it.
Yeah, that's that, that's so true because it's either one way or the other, and you can't just um fo follow the fad and just try to go so fast at the beginning without putting the right infrastructure and the right processes in place. Yeah, and I mean, there's like I'm a big fan of, and I talk about this in my book. It's like I'm a big fan of doing things at the right time mm -hmm. instead of like I it and it's it's like part of my DNA now. You know, it's. I always, I often tell my team this where it's not that that thing that you want to do isn't important or that it's not the right thing. It's yeah. just not the right time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and it will get to it. But when the sequence determines that we should be doing it. So like I'll give you an example, we, but two years ago, um, I acquired half of a brand called Pila case, right? Which is a, uh, iPhone case company, which everybody's gonna listening is probably thinking, why the hell would you buy an iPhone case company? There, there's a million of them. Um, the difference is this this one uh, was made of a material that was quite proprietary, and that it's it's a compostable, biodegradable material, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So bought that, and rather than try and just like really quickly ramp that thing up, and you know, sell as much of it as possible at whatever cost. We didn't care, you yeah. know, because that's the other thing too. Like, could I could sell a million dollars worth of this stuff next month, mm -hmm. but I would probably lose money doing so. So, you know, is that a good business? No. Um, so for the last two years, we've rebooted the brand, redeveloped the product. Um, we've built up very slowly this business to the point now where in the last 12 months, that business has gone from zero to seven figures, yeah, right? Because it's starting to that that snowball that's very slow to accumulate momentum at the beginning is starting to become quite large, and it's really carrying momentum. So, I think I think the the message is like you can you know a young entrepreneur. If I was doing this all over again, the thing I always tell myself is you know patience. Patience is really really important. Right. And not listening to the person telling you that, like, you need to go faster, um, especially if you're starting a business that has to do with physical things. Like if you're getting into e-commerce or retail, you got physical stuff. It's not mm -hmm. like a digital product or a course or mm -hmm. it's not mm -hmm. consulting or any of that stuff. Those businesses have a lot more moving parts yeah. and a lot more that can go wrong. Yeah. Um, and doing them slowly and profitably will likely result in you being around a lot longer. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's funny you should mention that because um, I kind of moved to Africa about um, two, yeah, roughly two years ago to start an e-commerce company. And within about six months of starting, I had to shut down. A, because the, com the economy turned around, people couldn't afford to buy the stuff. B, the technology partners were just... Um, a nightmare to work with and then see when things were going so bad you know and people are not buying again what do you do you're stuck with inventory so i'm stuck yeah. with like a, a container load full of baby products not knowing how to how to move them because people are not buying and i like man there's so many moving things you have to think about when you're doing especially retail and e-commerce like you you might just find yourself in a situation where you have to hold product until it becomes uh, favorable again for people to buy buy stuff from you you know rather than you raising prices and scaring everybody away so 
I, I think, yeah i think it's good for people to start thinking about things like you know patience really is a is a virtue and timing is everything whether you like it or not sometimes your time might just be too early or too late yeah i mean i i've told people this before and i've read i think i've even written it publicly like our timing with dmac was probably two years too early in the canadian market um because e-commerce didn't really exist when we started the business mm -hmm. um, which mm -hmm. means for the first two years um i was trying to like desperately convince canadian retailers that they should be selling online mm -hmm. and most of them told me to piss off mm. that was not that was nine years ago yeah right so but then at, within about two years uh at something there was like a light switch that went off and all of a sudden everybody wanted to be online and that's when now had i not been in it for two years slogging it out i probably wouldn't have been in position to capitalize as quickly as we did on it and mm -hmm. grow yeah uh, however during those two years that business struggled like dmac had a hard time in the first couple of years because there's just the demand wasn't there mm -hmm. right yeah um and i mean same thing like i'm noticing it again with pila where for the first year, we were figuring the brand and the product out to, and and who our customer was. And then once we found that customer, um, it seems like every month this type of customer is growing in number now, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. whereas before it wasn't. So like timing timing in terms of market is, is very huge. Um, Timing and everything else, like how much you buy and, and you know who do you hire and when do you hire that person. Yeah. I mean, like I, I timing and, and luck aren't talked about enough mm -hmm. in business. That's true. Right. That's true. I, I mean, that, but that's funny to me that you you got Canada is so close to um, the United States because eight eight years ago, like I said, I was still in the U.S. up until two years ago. And I just automatically assumed whatever was going on in the U.S. was happening in Canada at simultaneously, you know. So it's it's funny to note that, you know, there's still a bit of lag just across the border. Oh, years worth of lag. Wow. Like wow. years. Yeah. I mean, if you just – Amazon Canada has a significantly uh, smaller product catalog than Amazon U.S. does. Mm. Like mm. as a consumer, it's very noticeable. Okay. What we cannot buy – and we're, yeah, we're, I mean, 90% of the Canadian population lives within a hundred miles of the U S yeah. Right. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's proximity doesn't mean anything in this game. Um, but yeah, I want you to talk about your, your team and your company culture. How did you create the company culture and, and, you, and how did you assemble the team together to help you scale and grow this business? Yeah. Um, so there's been a bunch of iterations of that and it's, Team, I mean, team building teams is something that I'm, I'm very familiar with now, and I, I do speak about it at events and and um, and roundtables and anything I get invited to. Where I've I've gone through, I think four, four or five big you know shifts in thinking about how we organize the business. Like even this year, we went through a massive reorg where we changed how we structured the business fundamentally. It cost us a fortune to do, because you lose so much momentum when you do that mm -hmm. at our size, right, about 100 people. Um, but I think early on, when we were, when I was like first starting the company and you're in startup mode, there's definitely that like inherent startup hustle culture. Um, 
And the culture for us was just born out of this excitement, right? Like new industry, new space, changing landscape, you know, and even today, like our, our mission is still to help commerce evolve, yeah. you know, that's all. I just want to help it get better. Mm-hmm. Um, and the culture is born out of that, right? So uh, the early sort of like excitement-based culture, to me, I, I always tell people like it's really top-down. It started with me. Um, I was like overly excited about having a business and being in business and like I loved e-commerce and retail and I still do and and that was the culture. And I think we we hired some really good people, young people early, like between employees 10 and 20, mm-hmm. that um, because I didn't know how to hire people properly, I hired people that I liked and that I would sit down and get a beer with, yeah. which meant that the culture was carried on through those people. So they sort of became these, these like, I called them cultural pillars. You know, they, they rallied people, they got people excited, they kept everybody motivated, and they just did it naturally, because yeah. that was the kind of people they were. Um, as we've gotten bigger, you know, say like from 20, 20 employees now to almost 100, or I think we're over 100, I'm not sure, um, you know, culture then becomes something that you deliberately need to invest in. Right. Mm-hmm. So like it is a line item on our PL. We have a culture budget that gets allocated every year. And we have a culture officer. She owns people and the health of our people. Um, you know, we have like social committees and we do all of the things that a good business should do in terms of investing in people and everything that is culture. Yeah. Um you know, we have core values and we live those core values and we remind people of them all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that like those, I think is an, so I'm, I'm a, you know, software guy and I'm a data guy and those things are intangible and immeasurable. And therefore I've always struggled with them a little bit, but there's, it's hard to argue the results, uh, that come and the return that comes from properly investing in, um, teams and culture and people. Um, the organization side, like how you structure teams, is a whole other bag of worms that, you know, takes hours to explain. Yeah. And, and I know at one point your wife was working in the company and then she left to, yeah. to take care of your your baby. So, yeah. And then you also have a co-founder. So talk a little bit about the partnership in terms of working with your wife in the company. And then after she transitioned, I believe your your co-founder transitioned into the company and how you guys divide labor and how you run the business. Yeah. So my co-founder, Dimitri and I, uh, so Dimitri, Jen and I, um, so Jen is my wife. We all effectively, like I started the business and Jen joined me within a year. And then Dimitri joined within, I think six months after that as our co-founder. Um, so my wife doesn't get any credit as being a co-founder, but she was like employee number two yeah. or three, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and the, I, I would actually was, say would she's I, employee number one because she gave you permission. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She'd probably say the same thing. Um, yeah. So I, I, there's a lot of stuff when you're working with your, with your partner. Right. And um, the, the good thing with Jen and I was uh, there's like this really clean separation and that she's, very design and creative oriented. Like she was our creative director for a long time and I'm, I'm development and software. Um, so it's different types of brains, different, you know, nice clean separation of concern in that 
she took care of all the things creative and I took care of all things sort of sales, marketing, BD. And then Dimitri, my co-founder, is our CTO and he looked after engineering, right? So we had sort of like three big parts of the business all really cleanly separated. Um, And because of that, like, and I keep saying that, like there's a nice clean separation, a lot of that like partner conflict that you sometimes hear about, Mm -hmm. we didn't. We didn't encounter a whole lot because there was like I if if Dimitri tells me something about like the engineering team or something they're doing, um, especially today because I've been at it for so long, I can't reasonably argue, right? Like I don't have a leg to stand on. I have to trust him. Yeah. Um, just like on my side of the business, they had to trust me. So it worked well because we just got we just got to go do work. Right. And yeah. we, were, we didn't have like the squabbling and the bitching and moaning that you sometimes or at least I hear with some friends of mine that have partners where their roles overlap too much. Right. Yeah. Um, so for us, the no role overlap was just a beautiful thing. And it there was a harmony there um, that we had. And, and Jen and I, like we worked together for six years before we we got her out of the business. You're kind of known for being able to see and spot trends that are coming down the pike so how did you develop that ability and then in terms of looking at retail and commerce over the years how has it changed since you've been since you started in the industry and what do you see as a future of um, retail and commerce okay so let me unpack that (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a lot uh yeah okay so um, something I've said before is I – so like most – I think most good leaders are good readers, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I – while I do read the the standard you know, books on leadership and all the business – all that stuff, I definitely get to it. It's, it's not my main source of information. Like my preference has always been to read about uh, – like read stories and read about businesses. But not – I don't just stay within my world of like – retail and e-com I'm a very wide reader like I read about everything from like medicine and medical care to politics to you know manufacturing and oil and gas like I read everything anything and everything Um, and I do that because I find there's lessons to be learned that can be applied in my very narrow world if I go super wide in my reading and um, that helps with the whole like and, and the reason I bring that is because that helps with the the trend spotting and like where are things going, right? Um, so we can we can we we've built this muscle over the year, and I say we because it's it's not just me, but um, where we ask a lot of questions about how things might impact or apply to commerce, to trade, yeah. right, or to retail, um, and things that might be at first a little disconnected. So like a few years ago, people are talking about artificial intelligence finally becoming something. And, you know, my, my partner started to really dig in and say like, well, what is this going to mean for retail? Right? Like what are they going to be the applications of this in retail? Um, even though, you know, at the time it was just a lot of theory, like computer science theory mm-hmm. that didn't have an application or like, even, you know, Apple releases uh, the Apple Watch when they did, you know, like all we ask is like, what does that mean? 
to our industry. Yeah. Like I, I get that people are talking about like the biometrics and the monitoring and like health and all that stuff, but like there's there's going to be impact at some point from all this stuff. So I think the this is a relatively long-winded answer, but like that's how I do it. I just I tend to stay out of the like the the books only and and reading about like business theory and I go right after I spend more time reading about actual real world stories mm-hmm. and news and I try and see how that applies um applies to us. So the second part of your question is like then what yeah what happens to retail right? Yeah. And I mean I think like the news this year has been obviously so many retailers shutting them shutting down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and I mean, there's a whole host of reasons why each one closes, right? But I can tell you, like, the way I look at things right now and what I see is I see a sort of this vice, um, if you could picture a vice on the retail world. And on one one side of that vice, you've got pressure from the top, and that is Amazon, okay? Yeah. And Amazon is basically this big weight at the top of that vice putting pressure on the top of the whole industry and they're forcing everybody down to play their game which is a price war and a free shipping war and a logistics war mm-hmm. now the other side of a vice there's another arm right uh, or another hand and from the bottom there's pressure um from uh small niche brands like startups mm-hmm. you know companies that didn't exist five years ago yeah but are now, you know, 10 million, 20 million, 30 million more or more brands um, that are bringing new products to market in very niche markets. Mm-hmm. But what they're doing is they're like little little bait fish, you know, nipping and eating at the big whales. And yeah. those big whales are all of the mid-market brands, the mid-market retailers, even the fortune guys, the big guys that are failing. Yeah. They're failing because they've got pressure from the bottom and pressure from the top. And why they're failing is because all anybody focuses on and even the media is Amazon. Yeah. Right? They yeah. dominates the news. Like like the number one thing I get com- I get requested from my publicist to comment on is the latest Amazon story. And yet we're missing the other side of the equation, which is Brands can't fight what they can't see. So they can see Amazon. So everybody's trying to fight Amazon. But big brands can't see the 10,000 or 100. You know, Shopify's got a half a million customers now. Yeah. Businesses. Yeah. They can't see those half a million little guys taking their nibble too. Right? Yeah. And if you think think of it when like when you hear that, think of what that does to the established retailer like the 50 or 100 store retailer or the the brand that's been around for 20 years like think of the pressure yeah. on their business model from yeah. two very very different problems yeah. but they are coming together to squeeze the industry yeah. um, great thing is is like a whack load of opportunity if you're an entrepreneur <laughs> there's so much um, but it is creating quite a bit of turmoil so would you say the uh, opportunity is in creating those niche brand businesses or in creating businesses in the Amazon platform because it's it kind of looks to oh. me like your your kind of each brand or let's say, take for example Amazon Amazon has thousands of categories right and thousands of entrepreneurs and they're selling different stuff 
So let's say one good retailer in Amazon is taking over, let's call it the, the batteries category, for example. And then you have, um, oh my gosh, I forgot the name, Sears. I think they used to yep. create their own battery or something. So they can't oh, fight. Sure. The, yeah, they can't fight the guys on Amazon, and they can't fight whatever new guy is creating a solar-powered battery that will last ten times longer. Uh, has been blessed by Elon Musk somewhere or something like that. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the answer is like I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's both. Okay. You know, like we're Pila is a direct-to-consumer brand, um, and on our own site, we are a seven-figure brand, but. We are also opening up our our like store and stores on Amazon, on eBay. Like we're putting our product into marketplaces where yeah. our customers would be. And I think that that's what good brands do is they mm-hmm. look at channels and they use the channels as leverage, right? Mm-hmm. So like we didn't start out on Amazon because we knew that you know if we went to Amazon first, we're an Amazon brand, and we don't want to be that. Like yeah. we want to be something bigger, right? Amazon is going to throw gasoline on the business, which is great. Um, but the trick is you've got to be careful with Amazon because they've they've also flat out told the world that you know they want to sell, they want to own everything and sell everything. And mm. Jeff Bezos is famous for the "your margin is my opportunity," right? Yeah. So if if you're an Am, it, for me, if you're an Amazon only brand, you are a weak company yeah. because you're exposed. Right. And yeah. Amazon has a history of taking best selling items like batteries and and creating their own Amazon's basics version yeah. of that selling item and completely eating your lunch because you're in their garden. So I think it's both. I think you can use these big marketplaces to your advantage. You can give the marketplace value and the consumer of the marketplace value, which is key. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you can capture some of that value for yourself as a brand. Yeah. Uh, and then take that value and use it as leverage for some other channel. So why did you write the book, Anything, Anywhere? Who did you write that uh, book to speak to? I mean, I, like, there's a bunch of reasons why. I think – at first, I just I saw the the market and I'm like, why is why are there not very many books on retail? <laughs> like this, like it's the largest industry in the world is is commerce. It's like twenty two trillion dollars, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Trade physical stuff, um, it's, or it's one of the largest. Like it's so damn big, and there's not a lot of books on it. There's a lot of marketing books. There's a lot of sales books. But for me, you know, as a retailer from a retail family. Like where's mine? Like where where's the where's my playbook? Yeah. And yeah. You know who? And there are some, um, but I wanted to put something else out there. I also wanted to share just this is what we've been doing for a while, and I wanted to put out some of our thinking about the the space and the market and how it's evolving and and what we think brands and retailers need to do or should be looking at doing. And I mean by by no means do I think that like my way is the only way or 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 that I'm right on 100% of the things. I just wanted to put it out there so that the conversation could be had. Um, I think that was like the initial thought, right? Yeah. Was yeah. I, I was writing a lot on my own, and I, I'm a you know, voracious Evernote uh, user, and um, I just had so much raw material, and I thought like, geez, this could be a book, and I just realized I didn't know how to write a book. Um, so I went through the process, and. And uh, now I have one. Um, 
so it's yeah like it, it's that was it like that was the main spark was yeah. just there isn't much let's let's contribute yeah and i and i read through the book like i said i finished it today and i took a bunch of notes and one thing that stood out to me was um in one of the chapters you mentioned that um it's not necessarily what you do it's how you do it that that's yeah. what that's it's what, how and when yeah it's how and when and that's how what you should leverage to get success so could you explain and unpack that a little bit more yeah i mean that's that's this whole like the sequence is greater than the pieces right and i think the analogy that we use in the book and i've got a bunch of them is you know like if you were to set out to build a bridge over a river and you just showed up with all the materials and all the people and you just threw all the shit in the river you wouldn't have a bridge yeah right (laughs) um and i think that we're in a world now where like if you look at how easy it is to in in the world of e-commerce, how easy it is to start an online store, uh, and how easy it is to buy apps for that store and buy other software, um, it's it's created a problem. And the problem is that like it's too easy to buy it all because it's all cheap and accessible. And What's happened is like you got a bunch of entrepreneurs sitting there scratching their heads saying like, well, I set up my Shopify store and I bought the 15 most popular apps, but I'm still not making any money. Yeah. Um, or I bought all my Facebook ads, but I'm still not making any money. Like, And really, like I, I, I've, I'm in this lovely position that I'm grateful for where I get to see a lot of these businesses quite, quite often. I have access to their analytics, their data, everything. Um, and the pattern that emerged was that they were all doing the same things. They just weren't all doing them in the same order. Okay. And depending on the business you're in, there is absolutely the right order in which to approach your problems. Um, and I, that's where that idea came from, which was – and I I'd watched so many companies over the years do the same damn things. Uh, they just did them in a slightly different sequence and that was all the difference. So, makes sense yeah that makes a lot of sense so so does that mean that if somebody were to have kind of like um the playbook or the sequence with which one company did that and applied it in their industry would it work for them or would you have to adapt it to um i think you've always got to adapt um you know like there's no one thing that works for everybody yeah and i think but i do think that like if you could look into I mean, that's where we have to be careful, right? Because I think what what happens is, um, you know, big big platform company decides to publish a case study on how brand X went from zero to ten million in twenty four months. Yeah. Uh, and here are all the tools they use. Yeah. But it completely misses the well. What was step one? Yes. What was step two? What was step three? Like, what order in which did like which order did they do all of these things? Yeah. Um. So instead, you got a whole bunch of people that run out and do what they think is the same thing without the same effect. Um, so I think that's like it, it's you you absolutely have to think a little more, a little deeper about each either each piece of technology or each role that you look to hire or each process or or system that you put in place. Like it is far more important to think about like how does it help me now and how does it help me over the next six months and do i even need this right now or is this something that should come later which is this idea of like the software roadmap you know being applied to retail yeah Um, i think it's more important to do that than it is to 
to just get it all right yeah. which is yeah. what which what most startups are doing right now is they're just buying too much yeah and when it comes to looking at um, you know generating inbound leads for for companies especially in e-commerce and the rise of content and commerce oh how, yeah how do you think that's going to play out going forward because a lot of people are like oh let's blog 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 no results let's post on facebook no results yeah. <laughs> let's tweet <laughs> nothing you know yeah yeah there's a so a friend of mine jason gaynard says there's like there's never been so much information in the world and there's never been such a lack of wisdom and i don't know where he got that from but it sticks out with me and i think it applies to marketing a hell of a lot right yeah. in that the amount of content the, the the internet doesn't need more content it just genuinely doesn't mm. right and you have to think about it that way so like it doesn't need your top five list for something it really doesn't there's a there's a thousand of them already and they're probably all the same anyway yeah so you know i think if it you're if you're going to use content um you really have to approach it like the people that are successful with using content, especially in commerce, the quality of what they put out there is just heads and shoulders above everything else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. it's valuable. Like it's really, really, really valuable stuff. And that's what works and that's what resonates. Like every time I, like, you know, I hear somebody say, like, well, you just, you create content and then you just go on Facebook and you promote it. And I'm like, well, that's great. But um, I mean, if it's crappy content and the ad is crappy, um, you know, it's not going to be effective. Yeah. So, you know, it's, again, it's a perfect example of like the actual tactic or the tool isn't what, what creates the results. Right. And, <laughs> and I think that broadly, like forget just lead gen, I think broadly, that's a really good way rule to live by, which is that the tool itself is not what's going to drive sales. So when you see a piece of software or, or a course or, uh, an advertising platform like a Facebook and they're selling you that their their solution is what's going to drive growth bullshit like that's it's completely crap yeah right it's how you apply it and it's not the thing itself it's what you do with it yeah. um yeah. so it's really important that that we have that filter as entrepreneurs that when someone's telling you that this, this thing that they're selling you is the key, it's not <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's probably part of it, but it's not the thing. Yeah, take, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's funny. Cause I know um, one of my buddies, uh, Aaron Orendorf, he writes for the Shopify blog and every time he, they put out some content on the, I believe it's Shopify Plus. I don't. I'm not sure. But yeah. any any piece of blog content they put up there, it's always super helpful, and it's not like some, you know, flash in the pan, shiny object yeah, that you just come and read. It's something that it'll still probably make sense five, ten years down the road when all the tools have changed. Yeah, they do. They actually, they as a company, they do a very good job uh, in creating valuable content. And I think recently. Somebody, I forget which site posted, like they reverse engineered Shopify's growth engine and like how they used content to grow this business. Yeah, I saw, uh, I saw that. I don't it, remember the It was name, amazing. Saw, like it's, yeah. a, it's such a good read. I, 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 if you could link to it or, or share, yeah. I, I don't know what it is, but I, I read it and I've got it saved in my pocket. It's freaking amazing. Yeah. Uh, but I think like they are a good example of a company that 
they give you valuable information, um, but they don't oversell the information, right? They just yeah. give it to you, and then it's up to you to use it, and how you use it is entirely up to you and your business. Yeah. Great. So as we start to wind down the show, I just want to ask you a couple wrapping up questions, and then I'll let sure. you go. So what does success mean to you? Uh, that's a good one, and it's a hard one to answer. I, I believe success is is highly personal, and I also think that success is very much a sits on a spectrum. Um, you know, so for me, it's it's mostly about having freedom of time and worry to to do more of the things that you know light me up. Mm. And looking back on your career thus far. What's a significant personal failure you've experienced and how did you overcome it? Uh, so my, my repeating failure that I've yet to overcome is I am inherently optimistic in the uh, outcomes that I, could, uh, I, I might see. So I always think things are going to turn out better than they do. And that in itself, it... it it, it creates a form of failure that's tough, right? Because it's like, am I always am I always short of my expectations? Now, I adjust quickly, but I still think that I, I need to be a bit more realistic um, in in like my expectations. Mm-hmm. You already talked about you reading wide and vast. So, who are some <clears throat> entrepreneurs you admire, and what's your key takeaway from the people you look up to? Ah, oh, that's a really good question. So, I'm a, I'm a big fan of um, Gino Wickman, who wrote a book called Traction. So, like, I run DMAC on the uh, EOS, which is the Entrepreneur's Operating System, Traction EOS. Love that. Um, you know, pretty much like anything that Ryan Holiday writes, talks about. I, 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 while I look up to people like Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, and I think that they the world needs them, um, I don't, I don't, you know, go too deep there, just because I think they're so damn unique and so rare that yeah. it's unreasonable for the rest of us to even think that way. Yeah. Um, so I'm a, I like, you know, I, I like, I like all the the entrepreneurs that have like real, real world stories that don't seem like unicorns. You know, mm-hmm. like I, just things that I can I can learn from, yeah. or or I think that I could maybe do. Yeah, <laughs> like like the relatable superhero, kind of like Batman, right. Batman as opposed to Superman. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. What's one thing that's getting you excited to go to work these days? Uh, I I'm I'm loving building uh, a, a couple brands in house now. Like Pila is one, World of Angus is another. Um, I think the the future is in small brands. I'm particularly excited about Pila because I'm a bit of a tree hugger, and I love that. You know, if if the whole world bought our phone case, we'd have a significant amount less waste oh, yeah. uh, on the planet. And that's just a that's a that's like that's something that's personally really lighting me up is. You know, taking all this experience and all this time spent selling selling stuff and really starting to turn that effort and say, like, can we make better product that is less harmful to this world? And mm-hmm. and I think that's where commerce needs to go. That's my own personal mission, right, is that uh, I'd like to see it go there. Um, 
so I, I'm really enjoying that right now. That, that gets me up in the morning pretty happy. So, so what's World of Angus? World of Angus is a pet brand um, that we recently brought on, and uh, and we own a chunk of it. DMAC does. Um, so it's worldofangus.com, and uh, it's just it's a fun pet product brand. But it's like makes like really high quality organic shampoo and good quality dog beds, and um, we've got a, a little dog park. Uh, like it's it's a it's just a good brand, and everybody loves pets, so it's a lot of fun to to work on. Yeah, can't go wrong with pets and babies. No, man. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> so uh, my last question is going to be, what's the final word of wisdom you'd want to let people know that kind of starting their entrepreneurial journey? Uh, I'm going to rip this one off. So I'm, I'm, all, my, all of my best ideas are stolen. Best thing I've heard in the last five years, and I continue to repeat it to anybody that will listen, um, was uh, from Derek Sivers uh, when he said, don't be a donkey. Um and he explains it and he says like, look, it's highly likely that we're all going to live a lot longer, especially if you're a young, a young entrepreneur. Like mm-hmm. we've got years and years and years ahead of us, highly likely, right? right? Unless something fortunate happens, uh, which means we don't need to do everything now, right? Yeah. And it doesn't all need to be tomorrow. So, you know, I think it's sad when I hear a 22-year-old talk about how they're depressed because they're not yet successful mm. or they haven't yet, you know, Mark Zuckerberg had Facebook when he was 23. Like, okay, that's something that's pretty unreasonable to look up to. But like the whole don't be a donkey thing is, it just resonates so, so much with me that, um, I now like everything I look at, I'm like, do I need to do this right now? Or can I maybe do that in five years? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, cause I'll probably have time. Hmm, interesting and with that said my friend it's the end of the hour i really want to thank you for coming so where can people get the book and connect with you personally uh i mean the easiest thing for everything is just matt bertulli m-a-t-t-b-e-r-t-u-l-l-i.com um that's my personal site links to everything book medium twitter freaking dmac pila everything is all sort of that's my hub it's my digital self Okay, and I'll link to all that in the show notes. All right, thanks a lot for coming to do the show, Matt. I really appreciate you spending the time to share your background, your words of wisdom, your strategy and tactics for building a world-class digital business. Yeah, no, this is great, man. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com.